0: Hey everybody, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. We're doing the show from Washington, D.C. this week, and so I am in studio with our crew. We have Mo Lathe here. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and... To my left, which is odd, but to my left is Sarah Isger, Senior Editor at The Dispatch. And we also have Evelyn Farkas in the studio with us. She is Executive Director at the McCain Institute and former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Defense. Hello to all of you. Hey. Hello. Hello. Uh, So, Evelyn, one reason we asked you to come in and join us today uh, was to help us work through the meaning of um, President Biden's big trip to Ukraine this week. I mean, this was, of course— the best-kept secret in politics until <laughs> yeah. he was in Kiev after taking an Oso biden route to get there, the train. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He met with President Zelensky. He delivered this message to Ukrainians about steadfast U.S. support for their cause. And he reminded Russia's President Vladimir Putin that Ukrainian sovereignty is officially part of U.S. national security policy. And in, in a speech in Poland, the president said that the United States, NATO, and all democracies are being tested by Russia's invasion. And he framed this war as a fight between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and tyranny, between good and evil. And he really stressed the importance of stability across Europe and the role that NATO plays in in maintaining it.
1: There should be no doubt, our support for Ukraine will not waver,
0: NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Our support for Ukraine won't waver. NATO will not be divided. Um, I guess, Evelyn, general reactions, but in particular, I'm just interested in the expectations now that President Biden has put on the NATO alliance to support Ukrainian independence.
2: Well, David, I think, first of all, I just have to say thank you for having me on and in studio. It's really fun to be with everyone. Um, But I have to say that um, what President Biden did was brilliant on so many levels. It was obviously courageous. It was bold. It was, in terms of timing— a getting out ahead of Vladimir Putin and his speech to his audience, which really were the elite Russians and to some extent the Russian people.
0: Although he, some wondered whether it was in reaction to Putin, which I know the White House had to make clear was not the case.
2: No, of course not. And then his trip to Kiev was done without the Russians knowing what was coming. So that was very interesting and very proactive on his part. Um, courageous, of course, because he went into a war zone. Um, which, which wasn't a war zone where we, he had his own troops, if you will, to, to protect him. Um, and, and he was also offering a message to the Chinese government because just the day before, also, Wang Yi, the senior Chinese foreign official, um, had been in Munich and had essentially told the world that. You know, China wasn't going to take a side, but then flew immediately off to Moscow. And took a side. So they're sort of taking a side. Um, So we can unpack all of the various um, elements of this. But I think essentially what President Biden was saying is that we are behind you. And again, the timing— is not just because of Putin's speech. Putin's speech was on the calendar because we're a year in, because the Russian government needs to pull some trick out of its hat because they're failing on the battlefield. They... We're talking about an offensive, and there's a big question mark about whether this offensive started already or if it's coming or if it's already failed. And so I think Biden's speech at this moment, his trip at this moment, was at a moment where we are united, and he's essentially saying we're going to stay united, that Putin, you can't wait us out. We're going to actually ramp up the pressure on you.
0: But what does behind you mean? I mean, Ukraine obviously wants to be in the NATO alliance. Isn't that unlikely? And isn't it important as we think about the path forward here to know that Ukraine can only count on so much if they're never going to be a, a, you know, a, a treaty ally of the United States and other countries?
2: Well, I would. Um Quibble with your or or counter your assertion that they're never going to become a NATO ally. You think it's possible? I'm pretty darn sure now, having been through this war, having used all the NATO equipment, they're probably the most capable of any NATO ally when it comes to using all the diverse equipment in the NATO inventory. I can't think of another country that's had the experience they've had thus far. And they're innovating on the battlefield. We are learning from them. I know that from when I was in the Pentagon in 2014, but it's obvious now to the world that we're also learning from them because the World is seeing what they're doing with drones, tactically, strategically, et cetera.
0: They're actually getting better at war in some ways than than countries exactly. like the United States might be.
2: They have a few things to teach NATO. So, uh, so, so militarily, they're they are absolutely ready, probably, to be in NATO today. There are political components. So, you are right that they're not going to get NATO membership. You know, tomorrow with the with the membership card, they have to do a, a lot internally. They have to address corruption. And then, you know, frankly, they do have the issue of protecting their sovereignty. That's always been an issue for NATO uh, if if a country has foreign troops on its soil, with the big exception of West Germany <laughs> during the Cold War. But you're um,
0: bringing up something really important. I mean, the, the NATO alliance does not normally bring in countries that have frozen conflicts within their borders, which I think we can safely say Ukraine does right now. Right. Um, I mean, they have it's not um,
2: frozen. It's not frozen. It's happening <laughs> yeah. but
0: but but actually, that's a really good point because looking two, four, six years down the road, I mean, can anyone say that it's likely that that Russia won't have a presence in parts of Donbass that won't still be, you know, controlling Crimea? and won't that make it really difficult? To to have that argument that they should be in NATO, and I, I guess that that's my central question. There's another scholar, Hal Brands, um, at Johns Hopkins, and and he had a piece in Bloomberg this week saying Ukraine's future is not in NATO. I mean, he said they deserve to be, just okay. like you're saying. Yeah. Um, but he said because it's unlikely, because there'll be these ongoing border disputes, because Russia will probably always be threatening from the east, we should be looking at at other long term policy options not assuming that that's ever going to happen. You know, a real long-term commitment to military training and some kind of pact potentially between NATO and Ukraine, you know, that would establish a relationship that acknowledges that they're never going to be in the alliance. Isn't that a smarter... Way forward?
2: I think it's both, David. So I agree with Hal, who I worked with in the Pentagon, that you have to think, worst, worst case scenario, that Vladimir Putin or someone like him with that sort of foreign policy, aggressive foreign policy, will remain in the Pentagon. I'm sorry, in the Kremlin. <laughs> and so therefore, we have to come up with a strategy to provide Ukraine with security guarantees and deter Russia from further, you know, from new assaults against Ukrainian sovereignty and assaults, frankly, against the sovereignty of other neighboring states. So yes, we need to come up with some mechanism. And I guess I hinted at it. You know, we did have a way around this during the Cold War. And Moldova and Georgia are looking also at wanting to become NATO members and being denied that option because of Russian troops on their territory.
0: What was the workaround during, during the Cold War?
2: Essentially, we decided to ignore the fact that there were, you know, enemy forces, enemy agents in one part of the the NATO territory. So it is doable, but I would say— you know, I said both. We should hedge negatively, but we should be optimistic. I don't think there's a reason to assume that Russia's always going to have this aggressive, imperialistic foreign policy. I don't think there's a reason to assume that Ukraine can't push the Russians out of its territory 100%. Including I don't, Crimea. Well, I was about to say about Crimea, I don't think it's—I um, don't think we can assume that at some point either President Zelensky or a future president might decide to make a political— compromise over Crimea with a future Russian government I don't think it's possible with Vladimir Putin but you can't rule that out either so what i'm saying is there are some more optimistic scenarios that could allow nato could allow could could allow for nato membership ultimately
0: but let me ask you this just listening to you kind of play this out with us the idea of in theory maybe a future russian leader being willing to talk about Crimea wouldn't that seem much more difficult if leaders like Joe Biden keep sort of suggesting or hinting that Ukraine is part of the NATO family?
2: No, because I think what President Biden's doing right now is strengthening Ukraine's hand at a future negotiating table. It's what you want to do is yes, okay, you if if you could, you know, allow Ukraine to militarily defeat Russia today. But short of that, you want to just have them have the maximum strength when and if they have to go and negotiate with the Russians. At some point, they will have to. And they'll have to decide whether they're exhausted militarily and they want to do it tomorrow or whether they want to keep on fighting and do it the day after tomorrow.
1: Evelyn, I want to go back to something you referenced earlier, and that was China and all of this. Yeah, Because we did see quite the cozying up between Beijing and Moscow this week, to the point that the United States had to say any, any lethal military aid from China to Russia would be a red line. I guess my question is, what is China's play right now? And should NATO and the U.S. be a little nervous after, after that display this week?
2: I mean, I think we have to be really wary about what China's up to, because if, if President Xi thinks he can get away with providing military support to Russia, he will. He can make money off of it. He wants Russia to continue to be a thorn or more than a thorn in our side, right, Um, to weaken us, to test us. Uh, He, I think, probably doesn't mind us also weakening Putin (laughs) and the Russian military. So, So China doesn't necessarily mind the war per se and would certainly want Putin to prevail in the end, weakened nonetheless, but prevail. But China... Also is not willing to sacrifice its own economic future, or, of course, the well-being of the Communist Party. <laughs> so, so for President Xi, he'll provide whatever Russia wants, but if he's going to pay a price economically in, in, the, in the form of sanctions and serious sanctions, I don't think he's going to take that risk. And I think that that's what our government is trying to convey right now to the Chinese government. Don't even think about it because we do know that the Chinese are providing dual use goods to Russia, but and I think we're going to have to figure out what to do about that. but if they were to provide real munitions, yeah. that would be of course um, an escalation from our perspective.
0: you think the diplomatic visit that China just made to Moscow that you mentioned would that have happened if the balloon incident had not taken place and that that you know our Secretary of State would have had time to maybe deliver a message in
2: Um, in Beijing? It's a really good question. I don't know, David. I think part of it has to do with the fact that the Russians were deliberately not invited to the Munich Security Conference. So again, Wang Yi was, I was there in Munich. He was, he gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference, which was very typical, you know, repeating the Chinese talking points. It wasn't vitriolic. It wasn't like wolf warrior tone, but it was very firm and it was very much you know, Taiwan belongs to us and all the usual things that they would say and we're not taking sides. But then he flew to Moscow. And I think because the Russians were not invited to the Munich Security Conference, but the Chinese were and they went, they probably felt that they had to. I'm not sure, but that may have been part of the calculation.
3: I want to ask a question about domestic politics in a way, at least the criticism from the right about President Biden's trip has been the side-by-side of East Palestine and the train derailment in Ohio. And this is a state that obviously um, is a pretty red state at this point, but it's specifically in an area, 72% voted for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. And the idea is, you know, Secretary Buttigieg did go this week, but President Biden didn't go and instead chose to go to Kiev. And that came with an enormous gift of money. Now, that money had already been appropriated, and it's Congress, and I, I understand all that, but I'm curious what you would say. We've talked plenty about the strategic reason of helping Ukraine and Russia and China and all of the interplay of that, but the money specifically and whether you think that money's being well spent, whether you think the other NATO allies are contributing their fair share, um, because I, I think that criticism is, oh, my God, God, the amount of money that we just gave to Ukraine and what that money could do in a place like East Palestine or take them away, just our infrastructure so that trains stop derailing, whatever that is. And so I'm curious what you think about the money and its efficiency uh,
2: as it relates. So that's really interesting because last time I was on here, I got that argument from the left. <laughs> so from the left, Elizabeth was saying, or Liz was saying, um, Brunig, yeah, when she was why on. Are, yeah, why are we putting money towards towards Ukraine when we could be feeding children and taking care of our domestic needs? And I think the answer is it's it just doesn't work that way. We Even if we said to ourselves, well, let's just let, Ukraine fight for its own sovereignty and let the chips fall where they may, this conflict would find us because the bad guys would find us because we're still the number one military, economic, and political or diplomatic power in the world. So the bad guys will come for us because we can counter them and they know it. And on top of that, we have this operational alliance called NATO. And if Putin has his way with Ukraine— Then he will turn to Moldova and Georgia because they're kind of weak countries, as I mentioned already, with Russian troops on them, as David knows well. And then he will test NATO because he doesn't want any counterbalance. He wants to be able to go back to the pre-World War II system where large states dictated to small states what they could do, what their economic and political affiliations would be. And we don't want that because we don't want another World War III because we know under that old system, pre-World War I and World War II, or even pre-World War II, end of World War II, I should say, we had a dog-eat-dog competitive system. And what we did with creating the UN Charter and the UN system, we didn't create a perfect world, but we created enough rules around how states should behave. Number one, that they should respect borders. (laughs) Um, And then some things with human rights, which again, we don't always get Either of those things, right, every day, but they did prevent through this international mechanism of the United Nations and all the rules. We have prevented World War Three.
0: I think when it comes to when it comes to Ukraine, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, sir, and I'm, I'm I'm really listening closely to your answer, Evelyn, because I I do think that this is the Biden challenge in in a lot of ways going into to 2024. I mean, when it comes to Ukraine, the road to convince Americans to stay the course and stay committed to a country that is not in NATO and to keep making the argument to the American people that this war that they're watching far off in a country they're not familiar with could come in some way to our soil, yeah. that road gets harder and harder and harder as more time goes on. and We're going to have a lot of election happening and a lot of politicking, and it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a hard road, but one that it sounds like Joe Biden is, is committed to, to fighting through, but it's going to be against a lot of headwinds. Um, are we going to have to leave it there? Uh, Evelyn Farkas, executive director of the McCain Institute and former deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Defense. We always appreciate you having uh, having you on. Thanks, Thanks so much for having
2: me, David. Thanks, guys, for the debate.
0: And we're going to be right back to talk about the Supreme Court's upcoming ruling on big tech. Could companies like Facebook and Google soon become liable for recommending harmful content? You're listening to Left, Right and Center.
4: You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW.
0: Okay, we're back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, Moa and Sarah Isger are here. Sarah, I always love pointing out that you're a lawyer in moments like this because it helps a lot when we're covering things like we're about to cover, which is the Supreme Court, because the court has been hearing arguments this week on. A case that really could decide the future of how online platforms monitor speech and content. This case was brought by the family of Noemi Gonzalez, an American student killed in the 2015 ISIS terrorist attack in Paris. They claim, the family does, that Google should be held responsible for the YouTube video that the site's algorithms recommended, which ISIS then used to their advantage in recruiting people. Up until now, the Communications Decency Act has shielded tech companies from legal action over their users' posts. Limiting this law could expose platforms to lawsuits that could change the very basis of how the internet works. And we have another guest in the studio. It is Katie Harbath. She is an expert on technology and democracy. She writes for her Substack blog, Anchor Change. She was a public policy director at Facebook for a decade, and before that did digital strategy for the Republican National Committee, which makes it notable that you Mo, a Democrat, said that Katie is the person we need to have with us today to, to talk about this. Yeah,
1: there are few people I've ever met uh, in in this town who know this material better and was very thrilled to have Katie as a fellow at our program at Georgetown to work with our students and help them think it through. So excited to have you. Here. And David started talking about it in his intro, Katie. But like we keep hearing about Section 230 in the context of, of the two Supreme Court cases this week. Can you just give the Luddites, like me, just like the basic prime? What is Section 230? And both Democrats and Republicans are calling for there to be more accountability in tech. Could that be on the horizon?
5: Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And Mo, always lovely to to see you. So really, basically, Section 230 was created in the mid-90s, around 1996, that said that internet platforms, I think it's actually internet service providers or something like that aren't going to be held liable for the content that other people are putting up on their site. And it was a really crucial law to help the growth of the Internet um, over the years. But, Mo, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of concerns lately of questions around content moderation, what these companies are choosing to leave up or take down, that both sides of the aisle, for different reasons, think that modifying Section 230 to cause the companies to be more liable is the right way to go to achieve their end objectives. Um, We can get into it. I disagree that I think that 230 is the path for them to go on this. But the Supreme Court arguments that they heard this week, should they rule that the companies need to be liable for this, it's going to completely change the game of how We use platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, because the companies could potentially be held more liable for what is on them. And then my gut is that they're going to end up taking more content down. There might be a longer approval process. It's just going to change how we're used to just being able to post something, hit send, and it appears to the Twitter universe or Facebook users right away.
0: So it'll be that dramatic. I mean, you, you were on the inside at Facebook. This change in the law that makes would make a company like Facebook more liable will will cause drastic changes that we as users will will feel. There, it's going to no
5: depend what the Supreme Court ultimately rules on this. Um, the justices did not, see, they seemed to be more in favor of leaving this protection in for the companies in than part they did. they were
0: sounding like, I mean, especially Justice Kagan was like, we are not experts in technology. I mean, we know a lot of stuff. But. And I'm
5: very glad they admitted that. <laughs> and they were also, but they were also asking really th- what I thought thoughtful questions that I would, this is what the type of debate I'd like to see in Congress, where they were trying to figure out where to draw that line. And they were realizing just how hard it is to draw this line. And I think the justices, like most students.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
5: And the justices were realizing, like, I mean, I'll be very curious to see how they try to write any sort of ruling on this, because I think they realized how hard it is to draw these lines. Now, I think initially, like if they do come down and say the company should be held liable, depending upon when that goes into practice, I could see the companies initially taking down more content until they figure out the right balance of what they need to take down, what they could be held liable for. The justices were very right that this will increase the amount of lawsuits a lot, which is actually going to hurt anybody who thinks these companies should be broken up or there should be more competition because smaller platforms are not going to have the resources to fight all of these lawsuits that they have to do. And so in some ways, you're going to be entrenching the Googles, the Facebooks of the world who have that type of money. And we heard Google's lawyer even arguing that um, again in, this week.
0: Remind us, I mean, one of the really interesting things here is you do have both Republicans and Democrats, as you said, for different reasons, saying that this law should be changed. How would you frame the reasons that the two parties are are both using to to go after this law?
5: So Republicans in general think that the companies are taking down too much content. and so they Particularly
0: conservative voices. Conservative voices and
5: stuff, and they want to hold them accountable for that. That's why I think amending Section 230 is just the total wrong way for them to go on that because it's going to cause more speech to come down than it is— to, to leave up. Um, Democrats, I think, generally feel that the companies should be taking more down and that they should be held liable for not making those decisions. So um, when you hear both of these sides go at it, you're getting a little glimpse into what my life was like at Facebook, where I would go <laughs> into—literally <laughs> go for meetings from one side to the other, and I kind of want to be like, can I just put you all in a room? <laughs> and like, because I couldn't, you know, I was getting it from both sides um, on what they wanted us to do, and it was usually the complete opposite. <laughs>
0: And the the Republican argument, I mean, why would 230 fulfill their goal of making sure that conservative voices aren't taken down? Because that's not a liability issue, is it?
3: Well, it could be. It could be. Okay. This is, you know, um, where there's a couple ways you could amend 230. There's the way that the Supreme Court argument is really looking at it, which is holding them liable. And what's interesting about the Supreme Court argument, as opposed to defamation, for instance, where it's just someone puts up the content, 230 is really clear. They are not liable for you saying Mo is a bad guy. I mean, that's an opinion, but a fact. As fact, Mo is a bad guy. I don't However, say that often
1: for the record. No, but Sarah does. Yeah.
3: What if they promote that content? What if they make it more likely for others to see it? It, That choice, is that then something they're responsible for? And that's what's interesting about the Supreme Court case. So on the Democratic side, you would simply say 230, for instance, doesn't protect you against promotion and the algorithm's choices to showcase those defamatory statements or, in this case, ISIS. On the Republican side, though... For instance, common carrier laws. Common carrier is a creation of Congress, and it's basically carrot and stick, right? You get these protections, and in exchange, you lose these other rights that you would have as an organization. And so you could also amend 230 and say, in order to have this protection from liability— you can't discriminate based on political viewpoint anymore, or you're going to be a common carrier um, so that for the same reason Verizon doesn't get to decide you can't call Mo because they don't like what you're going to say to Mo. You know, today you're a white supremacist in my scenario. You're a white supremacist. We think you're calling Mo for your white supremacy purposes, and so Verizon simply won't let you make that phone call. Verizon doesn't get to do that because they're a common carrier. That's not true for the internet companies, but you could amend Section 230 to create that carrot and stick.
0: Can I ask all three of you, do Republicans have a legitimate argument that conservative voices are being removed from these companies' platforms for political reasons?
5: So I—we need to reframe the question.
0: Okay. Because (laughs) I don't think the right— Probably just caused a lot of people to scream by even asking it. it, No,
5: well, and I think that, like, this is what kind of drives me bonkers sometimes because— When Republicans are saying censorship or we don't like that you took stuff down, the real question is they don't like where the companies are drawing the lines of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. They also conflate that with how much should something be boosted or how much reach should something get versus just the ability to to say it. And so I think that we continue as a society to have this debate over where these lines should be drawn. And I think there can be some valid arguments from the right and questions about what should or should not be left up that we should be talking about. I don't like it being characterized as censorship and and other things because— Facebook, Google, nobody has rooms of people just going purposely to find conservative content to take it down. And that's how sometimes I think people think that they're like purposely going out there to try to find that content when it's a bit more of how the policies are, are shaped, which there's always unconscious bias and other things that go into that. I've never seen it be a political thing like outward political bias in writing these policies. But I think it is fair around questions of, you saw this a lot, you know, around transgender issues and pronouns and stuff like that that happened, um, particularly with Twitter, um, of those questions of what should be up and should what should be left up, what should be left down, what's harassment, what's not. And I think that's a very valid debate for us to have. Yeah, the problem seems to be that
3: the stuff that the right believes— is considered off-limits and the stuff that the left believes isn't. So I think abortion is almost a better example. You're super pro-choice. So let me give the very caricature versions of this. You're for killing babies. No one at Twitter or Facebook has a problem with that. But if you're pro-life and you're for making women carry all babies to term against their will, that content gets taken down far, far more often. And so that's where you can see the political argument of why one side is being favored over the other. Although Katie's right, it's not R versus D. But I mean, I remember, um, what was that, 2017, 2018? You know, if you type into Twitter the beginning of someone's name, it'll sort of start autofilling some of the more popular blue check marks. Ronna McDaniel, like, you could not, you had to type in her name all the way, search it, and then go find her account to get to it because they had deep, Shadow ban, whatever that like fun term was, um, because they didn't like what she was posting. This is the head of the Republican National Committee. They didn't do that to the head of the Democratic National but Committee. But you
0: had a president of the United States who would create content that you could argue should be taken down. I mean, it, and so that's, it,
3: but that's the problem, right? It's like, OK, yeah, but her content was worse than the DNC's content. It's like, yep. But that's where you're going to then get into this fight about conservatives. But can't there
0: be standards? I mean, like, I feel like there can be, you know, in, you know, misinformation about a pandemic that should clearly not be disseminated. Like, there have to be lines
1: that can be. I mean, first of all, the data showed that conservative voices were amplified more on Twitter than progressive voices. At the very same time, conservatives were out there saying our voices are being silenced. Secondly, you know, I, I always scratch my head just as a political comms guy when— the right starts screaming that you are silencing conservative voices for pulling down misinformation, for pulling down lies about vaccines, for pulling down lies about elections. Why is the right owning? That stuff. Why are they making that? One of those was anyone questioning
3: whether the virus had escaped from a Chinese lab. They took all that down and described it as misinformation. When in fact, we don't know, and that was conservatives doing it. So okay, so that left conservative content down. I just
1: think it's fascinating that conservatives would own a lot of the misinformation that they're putting out there as their ideology, and then attacking the platforms for um, for enforcing standards. Look, I think there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated with all the social media companies. I think there's a lot of problems out there. What I really want to get at, what I really want to figure out, is do we want these platforms to remain First Amendment absolutists? Understanding First Amendment doesn't apply to private companies, right? But do we want them to be free speech absolutists? Or do we want to be able to prevent algorithms from promoting pro-ISIS videos in my teenage daughter's social media feeds. If it's not going to be Section 230 that fixes that, as a dad, I need something to keep pro-ISIS videos out of my 13-year-old daughter's social media feeds. And you suggested that going after 230 is not the solution no, in your mind. I so think, what is? So
5: I think it's, at the first and foremost, it's transparency. And not just transparency into the choices these companies are making when they when they write these algorithms. the How they are ranking and what they are choosing to determine what content gets shown to each person in their feed needs to be... Um, be able to be studied by researchers it needs to be people to be able to look cross platform. but we also need transparency into the company's decision making process. We need to know how are they debating and writing these content policies, who are they consulting? why are they choosing to draw the lines where they are? and then separately, how effective are they at actually enforcing those policies because that is a totally separate a question um, where artificial intelligence machine learning we're never going to get to a point of 100% accuracy and even still it's you know there's still a long way to go and it keeps improving year after year that transparency will allow for oversight will allow for oversight will allow for debate it will allow for people to know hey actually Isis content is being is being promoted more to your to your daughter and for people to say that and pressure the companies to then to have to t- make changes to make sure that that's not happening. It will allow us to figure out better how we want to draw these lines and where we as society, as we're figuring out these new societal norms of what we want, what those should be, and then what the penalties should be for if you do break
0: So those forcing rules. companies to be transparent and then laying out the specific penalties. I mean, that's...
5: Yeah, and I think, and the other thing, too, is that's part of this, that's part of the problem, is nobody agrees on who the ultimate ar- arbiter should be. People don't want it to be the tech companies. They don't feel great about it being the government, particularly look, look globally. There's a lot of governments. There's some where they're like tech, they're like tech companies. You should be pushing back on governments in India and Turkey and, and other places that have these bad laws that they want you to take stuff down. But here in the States, we want the government. Well, now the Republicans are, you know, saying there's too much government involvement in trying to push these tech companies to take answers. So I think we need some sort of checks and balances to go into this. And so that's where oversight will help to do it. I think things like Meta's oversight board is an in, continues to be an interesting experiment um, in terms of trying to look at this is a external body that Meta set up that people can appeal if they don't agree with content that was taken down. They can appeal for that to be relooked at. And then also this advisory board will give Meta advisory opinions on its policies of where they think they could do better or be more transparent.
0: All right. We'll have to stop there. Um, Katie, I understand why Mo suggested you coming in. Um, Thank you. Thanks. Katie Harbeth is an expert on technology and democracy. She writes for her Substack blog, Anchor Change, and she was a public policy director at Facebook for a decade. And Sarah and Mo and I will be right back to talk about the four-day work week and whether it's becoming more of a real possibility. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center.
4: Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: we're back again with left, right, and center. Uh, Sarah, you said you had another thought on uh, on big tech and uh, these platforms before we move on.
3: Oh, I just want to make everyone angrier. Um, that's
0: what we're here for. That's what right. you do.
3: <laughs> 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 um, because I think it's important to talk about all the problems, everyone's legitimate grievances and all of that. But at the end of the day, the system we have isn't that bad. You don't want the companies to be liable for someone else's content if you want to have social media. Now, me, I could take it or leave it to begin with. But assume you want that and you want an Internet that has that capability, then you've got to have something like what we have now. And the, the backup to that is that there's competition And so if you think they're taking down conservative voices or they're not taking down enough or they're showing your kid ISIS videos, God help us. Look, these companies, as I said, have also a First Amendment right to decide what is on their platform because that is their speech in a way, the platform itself. And MySpace is gone. TikTok is coming. Snapchat is losing altitude. I mean, this is not stagnant. And so to some extent, the movement itself is what is a check on the system.
1: I don't know. I I think there does need to be some accountability. I do think that this is increasingly becoming the public square. But the fact, the notion that they are free speech absolutists, the notion that they are just allowing unfettered free speech has always been laughable because it's all driven by algorithms. These algorithms are deciding what speech I hear and I don't hear. These algorithms are deciding what speech my children hear and don't hear. And so there's got to be a level of responsibility if they are going to have that technology that is going to decide what information makes it into my feed and into my kids' feeds, then they need to be responsible for that to, to an extent. I'm not saying that they deserve, that they need to be responsible for putting a crappy chocolate chip cookie recipe that I hate in my feed. But what I do care about is if they are putting information that is false that is dangerous that
3: according to whom that's the problem according to you
1: well i would argue that there are some absolutes
3: there's absolutes today and then we find out they're wrong tomorrow this is the whole problem with the with newsom's bill in california
1: isis videos that one's pretty clear-cut to me that one is an absolute right there's going to be stuff out there that is absolutely damaging and and hurtful
3: but they're already ready to take down the ISIS videos. They're n- they're not arguing over no. We kind of want to leave some up.
0: But if they're held liable in the future, it's less likely that those videos will be promoted. I mean that that I'm not saying it's easy. I, yeah. I I just I mean the the solution is not easy. Where to draw the line and is not easy. In the meantime, easy. they're what?
3: leaving up the Ayatollah Khomeini's tweets to you know kill the Jews, and they're taking down a pro life video because they think that's you know toxic or stochastic terrorism.
0: The fact that we are all talking about there's no easy answer. I, I feel like what Katie was saying. Forced transparency, which I, which I, if she were still here, I would say, like, I mean, how willing are companies like Facebook to be like, oh, you want to be more transparent about all of our policies and our procedures? Like, sure, here you go. Like, here go. Which they is their are. trade
3: secrets, by the way. How that algorithm works is the equivalent of. How you build the catalytic converter for the Fords and that was probably but a Then bad we'd example. know.
0: Then we'd know this is taken down because it is a dangerous thing to our health as a country during a pandemic versus this was taken down because as you put it, like someone just vehemently disagreed with someone's view on abortion and transparency and then how penalties relate to certain decisions. I mean what I'm saying sounds
1: impossible <laughs> to figure out, but that that's
0: what has to happen? I, I, I don't know. Transparency. Yeah, I mean, Twitter like-
1: posted their standards, right, and before they started pulling people down. And they said, we are pulling these people down because they are violating our standards. That didn't stop the debate. That didn't stop the argument. And to your point, Sarah, right, like, to me, it made sense that Twitter pulled down President Trump's Twitter feed. But I agree with you. There are a whole lot of other bad presidents around the world <laughs> that probably should have had theirs pulled down, too, and they didn't. And so none of this is easy. But I need to be sure— that my kids are not exposed to stuff that I know will damage them, that oh I God. know will hurt them. A whole other and debate on whether we should have
3: age limits on social media. Senator Josh Hawley proposed a 16-year-old age limit, and that has met with a ton of resistance on the right, that students, children, actually do have First Amendment rights, and they have a First Amendment right to access content as well. Curious, but that's a that's a debate for another time.
0: Well, one debate I want to have right now is the four-day work week. Uh, There's no way we can solve
1: those questions in a four-day work it, week. No, or a five-day. <laughs> no, work we're going to need more. But I mean, I just this this seemed
0: like a pipe dream for so long. But now we've had this big pilot of four-day work weeks, and it seems successful. Ninety-two percent of companies that participated are not turning back. Um, this is a, this is a thing that was organized by the advocacy group Four Day Week. Global with a research group called Autonomy and researchers at Boston College, University of Cambridge, three thousand employees, sixty-one companies worked an average of thirty-two hours a week, received hundred percent of their pay, and the results seem positive for everybody: supervisors, employees, the company's bottom lines. Um, what are we all missing here? This, I mean, at least that pilot study suggests this could be a great idea, but it it can't be so easy. And I know there's a lot to think through, and there's also a lot to think through in terms of who would actually benefit? Exactly. There's the question of, of hourly right. workers versus exactly. salary workers. It's not that easy. And I, I don't want to, everyone to get so excited about it that we ignore some of the really fundamental questions that yeah. need to be asked. I
1: mean, look, if there was ever a time to actually really think about this in a real way, it's coming off of the pandemic when sort of our whole notion of how we work changed. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, right? this is the time. Uh, this is the time to figure it out because people did realize that, okay, maybe the, the 40-hour, five-day work week isn't The only way to do it. And I think that's probably a legit perspective. I do think that there are lots of questions. I don't think this study um, addresses all of them. I do think one of the biggest challenges is equity, that there is, you know, it's a luxury that a lot of companies uh, can uh, can explore. But for a lot of workers, they don't have that luxury. Their, and are, they're going to be abused. The Somehow, hourly the, the way workers, this goes through, they The essential workers, yeah. right? And you're just creating even more inequity in a system that already has a lot baked in. So I do think you would need to think through some stuff like that, but heck, this is the time to talk about it. Yeah.
3: You think back. You know, in a hunter-gatherer society, they've done all of these studies on how many hours, quote-unquote, they worked. And basically, the worst thing that ever happened to humans was agriculture. Because all of a sudden, you had to work much <laughs> I longer. I don't know if everyone's
0: going to agree with that. yeah, uh, You can you were, never
1: go back to Iowa. Yeah, you, you were, just, just live there are
0: 41 states now that you can never set foot okay. in. for. I mean, and you're from a rural community. A, I mean,
3: 10,000 years ago, when all of a sudden people became tied to the land, they became— uh, far more tied to a cycle um, and manual labor. And it turns out that was really, really bad. And I mention all this because our work week increased exponentially at that point from what it had been. Um, And it actually has decreased a lot since we've had a five-day work week versus a seven-day work week. I mean, there was only the Sabbath for a long time. So we've been playing with this for a long time, sort of like seats on the Supreme Court. It's gone up, it's gone down. Uh, So to Mo's point... There is nothing that says that we have to be at five days, but the people who will benefit from a four-day work week are the ones who already have the most flexibility in their jobs. Are the most um, likely to be in a, a knowledge economy type working environment, where sure, there you know if you actually look at how many hours you actually work. Take lawyers for instance; who have to bill their time. They may work 12-hour days but actually only be able to bill seven or eight hours of that because you're going to have some time to, like, think or go to the bathroom or eat or whatever else in that knowledge economy where you're not in an hourly wage. Um, So by and large, frankly, a lot of us are probably working four-day work weeks as it is. We just stretch it out over five.
0: And then you have people who are struggling and have two hourly jobs to try and make enough for their families. Probably looking at a proposal like this, like, Great. I'm going to be working the same number of hours, you know, to support <laughs> yeah. my family, and this isn't going to affect me That's at right. all. And
1: look, there, we also have labor shortages in certain industries, right? I mean, a lot of school systems are struggling to hire enough teachers. A lot of a lot of uh, hospitals are struggling to hire enough nurses. We're seeing some labor shortages in some industries. This could exacerbate it and put even more pressure on the ones who already are working there. So, you know, I would love to see this study that takes out all sort of the you know, for lack of a better word, privileged companies um, and just kind of focuses on hourly workers, does focus on essential workers and see how that works there. Um, but it's an interesting idea. And like we said, this is the time to to think about it uh, when we're already rethinking the future of work.
0: Is this the kind of question that people in both parties in our country could sort of come around and actually work to some, I don't know, answer that feels right and there's some sort of solution that would feel like everyone's coming together? I don't know, maybe I'm just waxing poetic in some There's a version of it way, we but.
3: are having, and it's over universal basic income. Yes, it's a small debate, and it's not involving that many people right now, but it's growing. And I think there's those on the left who are very in favor of a universal basic income because it's humane, right? Everyone should have their basic needs taken care of regardless of their ability to work. And on the right, the idea is, that actually it's deeply paternalistic and wasteful and inefficient to have the government giving you seven different kinds of uh, social safety net. Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, you know, rent subsidy, etc. And instead provide people with one lump sum, you can get rid of all of the bureaucracy and allow people to decide for themselves. And so there is like a horseshoe in politics around universal basic income. I think it's a really interesting conversation. There are different cities and jurisdictions that have experimented with it. um, With some good results, I think it's hard to ever say, okay, pull the lever on universal basic income and push We've disappeared all other social safety net functions. So I think for a conservative, the worst case scenario is we have universal basic income and keep all of the entitlement programs and bureaucracy and inefficiency and fraud, waste and abuse. Boom. See, we just spent a ton more money. So you have to fix that problem. But I think it's a version of the four-day work week, right?
1: Yeah, I think that. I mean, look, I think it's an interesting debate. I think there are going to be areas where the two sides, where both the left and the right might find some... Some starting point for a conversation i don 't know how far that conversation goes. The universal basic income thing, for example i don 't know that many people on the left want to give up all those social safety net programs in uh, in exchange for a universal you know we are sort of the and or side uh, uh, or and plus side in this conversation, but I do think it's an that you will find some commonality in exploring the future of work and how that could look differently. Um,
3: We're going to have to with AI also. I mean, AI isn't, (laughs) this idea that like, oh, they just replaced lawyers and novelists. Not exactly, but how we teach children is going to change so dramatically because we're not going to, it's not going to be a conversation about plagiarism. It's going to be teaching the kids to use AI so that they're no longer needing to know all of those things or research those things or be able to write the same way that we were taught to write. They're going to be writing with AI. And because of that, It's going to change what jobs exist, how you succeed in those jobs. Um, And that in and of itself is going to change our work weeks, how we find purpose and meaning and uh, what our competitive advantage in the world is. All of that is going to fundamentally change certainly what it means to be an American and maybe what it means to be human.
0: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. It is time for our left, right, and center rants and raves. Sarah, you first.
3: <laughs> I had a rant, it became a rave.
0: That's amazing.
3: I know. It did over the course of the week. I was so pumped for my rant, and then it, it, it became raved. A rave. itself. Okay,
0: that's that's cool.
3: So it started as a rant about the rolled doll sanitization of books.
0: I saw you tweet about that.
3: Yeah, right. Like I think banning books is bad. I think changing the language in books to meet our modern standard of whatever-whatever is much creepier and certainly as bad. But here's where it turned into a rave. Everyone agrees. Like, there's just—this didn't turn into a culture war. It didn't turn into people saying, great, let's do Huck Finn next. And by the way, Elizabeth Bennett isn't feminist enough for 2023, so let's fix her. Um, Instead, everyone's like, yep, don't like this because— The way that you learn from the past is by reading what they thought that we no longer think and how that worked and how quickly and what that meant and why. But it also inculcates the sense of deep humility because as you read that and think they're wrong and that you're right, you have to imagine what happens after you and what it means for someone to look back on your choices and your life and what you wrote and what you're getting wrong. And that's the grand handoff that we're in. And so everyone seems to agree with that. There's not a culture war right and left. That turned into a real rave. Also, though, the poor Roald doll publisher in a state, don't just go back. That was a huge—you <laughs> people don't agree, and
0: you're wrong. But they created the moment for you to say what you just did, That's which, right. so which I appreciate. Mo? Do
1: you remember a couple years ago, back during the Trump administration, when Puerto Rico was hit by a pretty massive hurricane and the president of the United States at the time went down there? and tossed water bottles and paper towels out to the crowd. And for years afterwards, talked about how uh, pointed to that as uh, an example of his leadership during a crisis. Well, the former and once again uh, presidential hopeful uh, Donald Trump pulled the same stunt this week in East Palestine when he, in order to make a political point, Um, that President Biden hadn't been there yet when he went to East Palestine and tossed out water bottles and handed out cleaning supplies to the local residents. It was a cheap stunt, and it belittles what the people of East Palestine are going through. When he went to Puerto Rico and tossed that out, it didn't help anything, and the people of Puerto Rico to this day are still struggling with the aftermath of that hurricane. We can have a real debate over what the federal response is or isn't in East Palestine and what should be done. But going down there to show leadership by tossing out water bottles and paper towels uh, doesn't cut it.
0: I want to rant about when technology is so outdated that it becomes nostalgic and therefore valuable um, because it just makes me feel old and like time is moving too fast. I mean, sure, there are Walkmans, VCRs, CD players. I've accepted those. But now an iPhone sells for $60,000 because it is so old and has been preserved in its original packaging. This happened. NPR and other outlets covered this. A woman named Karen Green got a first-generation iPhone in 2007. She never opened the box. The NPR story said it was so valuable because our cultural nostalgia is fueling the vintage electronics market. Vintage electronics,
1: an iPhone. It's great. Why would you buy it and never open it? You know uh, they
3: have the American Girl dolls, the new ones that are like nostalgia, historical, historical American Girl dolls. They're from
0: 1999. Yeah, see, this is all <laughs> a problem. <laughs> All right, Sarah Isker thank you as always. Uh, Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Special thanks to Robert Frazier and the crew here at Future Story News for hosting us in their studios here in Washington, D.C. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. Thanks for being here. Tune in next week. We'll be back with more Left, Right, and Center.
4: Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.